The Right Hook Podcast. With the Mitsubishi Outlander Business, the two-seater commercial SUV with over 2,000 litres of cargo space, two-ton towing capacity and legendary four-wheel drive technology. MitsubishiMotors.ie Many people out there battling the phone issues today. Vodafone reporting that they've suffered a major outage and customers at several locations around the country are reporting problems. Uh, We struggled a bit with some guests, but I'm delighted to say that they don't all have to be on the phone because we have one in studio here because new research released today shows that 7 out of 10 people looking to save for a mortgage say that they're being negatively hit by the central bank's mortgage regulations. Of course, today is the last day that the central bank is accepting submissions on whether or not it should change these regulations. But is it actually is it actually going to solve the housing crisis or even come close? Well, joining me to discuss this, Lorcan Sir, he's a lecturer in housing studies and urban economics at DIT, and he thankfully saved us from uh, ringing him, he came into the studio, so he's with us here. Larkin, how are you? Good evening, Bobby. Sorry about that long roundabout intro That's about okay. you coming to the studio, <laughs> but it's good to have you here. Um, firstly, Larkin, is there anything new in this? Yeah, not really. I mean, it's an interesting press release. I struggle to find what the news in it is really because essentially it's saying that people who have to save for deposits um, don't, uh, well, essentially it's saying 7 or 10 have to save for a deposit. Uh, 42% acknowledge that they will have to go to their family for a, a de- There's nothing new in this. Yeah. Uh, Irish kids over generations have either got land uh, from their family or got a deposit or in more recent times the support from the family has turned to things like child mining or moving back home when you're saving for a deposit. And the, the really interesting one is that so many of them, 52%, have been excluded from the area where they actually want to live on the basis of unaffordability. I mean, that's not new either. Not at all. Well, I'm sure. I mean, we'd all like, like to live in the top class areas. Yeah. But like you know, you, you, you cut your cloth. Uh, you know, according to, to to what you can afford. So I'm struggling to find the news. In this. Okay. Well, let's just chat generally. Yeah. We, we 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 can we can stay with the story. But the, firstly, you know, the 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 the, the central bank regula- regulations. Um, they're not going to change, are they? I there, there, there's no war. Like, there's a lot of huff and puff about this yeah. submissions, getting things in, but they're not going to change. Not really. I mean, I mean, any any part of the industry that's involved in real estate or selling uh, housing is keen for them to change. Really, they will say that they're they're great for stability, but ultimately they want them to change. And all the the theory, literature, practice, and experience says that these are a really good thing to bring stability, not just to the housing market, but to the economy as a whole. Because when your housing market is volatile, your economy is volatile too. Uh, what do the banks think about that? Um, I suspect the banks are probably in favour of them. Uh, really, I mean, banks like to see house prices rise, though, and that's the other side of it because it looks good on. They their also books. want to know their money will be paid back. And, and as soon as you, uh, as soon as you ease the the, the rules on central bank, all that's going to happen is house prices will rise. That will suit the bank's balance books, but it'll make their 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 uh, lending more risky. You know. Yeah, no, no. What about the one, though, uh, Larkin, that, you know, it's taken people six years, six months to save. On average, this is, mm. now, these are all average figures, yeah, yeah. the 20%. So, like, six and a half years to get the money together, is that surprising? I don't think so. I mean, what people don't realise is that in many countries in Europe, this is totally the norm, and a 20% deposit is the minimum. It could be 30% deposit. Mm. And, you know, when you look at my, at my parents, uh, you know, my father bought a house in Leakslip uh, many years ago, 1970. I'm sure he saved for six years. In fact, I no, he did. And it, there's nothing unusual in this. There seems to be a kind of a sense of entitlement about, about people out there that, mm-hmm. you know, they should be entitled to live where they want and not have to save for, for a long extended period. I'm, I'm in this boat myself. Only today I received my mortgage pack from, from a mortgage provider because I'm in the process of buying a house. So I, I do understand totally what this is about. But it's a bit of short-term pain for long-term gain. And if you want to think about it sensibly, do you want your children to go through what you're going through now? Mm-hmm. Or even worse? And really, you don't. So, you know, it, it, I think this for stability of the housing market and the economy as a whole, I think these are really good, you know? Yeah, no. And, and, and like, are we becoming... Are we going to become more like Europe in terms of the model? Are we going to become a nation of renters? Do you see the actual people who rent, I suppose rent forever so to speak and never buy a property is that going to be more prevalent yeah. in Irish society as we go forward? Absolutely between 25 and 33% of all households are going to rent forever and it's not necessarily to do with saving for a deposit or being able to afford a house I mean a lot of these people who rent uh, are well paid highly educated highly qualified people I know hospital consultants who rent I know accountants who rent directors of companies who rent and the reason they're doing it is, is not because of financial reasons it's because they're maybe on contract work mm. uh, from six months to six months a year or two years at a time and when you go to a bank and they say, well, you're earning loads of money, but actually your job is only secure for the next 12 months, they're very reluctant to hand out mortgages. So it, it, a lot of it will be to do with employment, the changing employment patterns that will force people to rent rather than actual affordability issues. 
Um, the central bank have re- received more than thirty submissions, you know, on these regulations and whether they should be changed or not. So, like, who, who will be making submissions to the central bank? On very this? surprised. All the usual suspects. Yeah, of course. And I'm very surprised that there are only thirty. Yeah, it and seems you, low. Yeah, absolutely. I thought there'd be like a few thousand. But the interesting thing there, and, and what people don't realise, is that there are many lobby groups out there that that will be making submissions. But in Ireland, being such a small country and the real estate industry being such a small industry, there's quite often an overlap of membership between the between the different organisations. So you might receive three or four or five submissions saying the same thing, but they might have a significant overlap of membership. So these people are getting three, four or five bites at the cherry to influence what's going to happen. Now, my guest is Lorcan Sarr. He's a lecturer in housing studies and urban economics at DIT. Lorcan, you've been on air, you know, over the last six months, particularly a lot about the housing crisis. Uh, Where are we at today on it? What do you see? What has changed? What are you still struggling with? Where is it going? Yeah, I'm I'm struggling with the the idea of people holding on to land. Like we have hundreds of acres out there of land with planning permission for thousands of houses and I'm struggling to see why the government isn't um, leveraging the owners of those uh, of that land sufficiently to get it onto the market. There is a, a, what's called a site, um, uh, a vacant site levy that's coming in in 2019 um, but it's only 3% of the value of the land. That's not going to affect anybody when the value of the land is increasing by more than 3% every so year. So this is, you know, if you don't develop this, you pay yeah, 3%, 3% which seems, as you say, tokenistic. Very, yeah, very small. Um, uh, and, and that, it doesn't look like it's and going is, to change. Isn't, isn't one of the problems that because if you want to do, deal with this fairly, you've got to give people an opportunity. In other words, you can't bring in legislation like this and have it applied yeah. tomorrow or the next the day. The reason this doesn't come in until 2019 uh, is that when you apply a tax for not doing something, you have to give people an opportunity to do something, which is fair enough. I get that. I do not get to 3%. Uh, 3% is when the, the value of land is increasing by more than 3% every year. Sure, land, you know, uh, builders and developers will, will hold on to their land and it's part of their strategy. I mean, they would argue it's a legitimate business strategy. Why wouldn't they do that in order to make money? That's what they're there for. Uh, on the other hand, there is an issue of, of, of housing uh, the state and, and, and housing its, its citizens. And, and I would think that, without a doubt, uh, the, the government really needs to start turning the screws on people who are holding onto land with or without planning permission um, in, in certain areas. Okay. You know. What about incentives to let vacant properties or to, to actually put them to use? Like there's a lot of vacant uh, residential properties for whatever reason in lots of different parts of the country. Like we haven't really, really dealt with that or no no one has really grasped that nettle. There's there's really interesting stuff going on about about, uh, our existing housing stock. So half the solution to the problem is is increasing our supply. That's a a no-brainer. The other half is managing the stock that we have. So in the last five years, we have built nearly 52,000 houses in the country. You think that's wonderful. But we've also only, but we've only added 19,000 to the overall stock. So in other words, about 32,000 houses have become obsolete or so, have fallen out of use. So, so we're not managing our housing stock yeah. really well. We're letting 123 houses every week fall obsolete in this country. In uh, a well, what's your definition week. of obsolete? Uh, beyond habitable use. Okay. Uh, and that's different to a vacant house. Now, vacant houses are different. They're houses that you could live in, but they just happen to be empty. But we're allowing 123 houses a week to fall obsolete every week in a country with a housing crisis. And I find that a real issue. Yeah. So managing what the stock that we have is something that we haven't addressed so far. Like it's all been about supply, 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 but that's two, three, four years down the line. What about the stuff that we have already? Six and a half thousand houses a year are becoming obsolete around the country that could be used to house yeah, people. Yeah, no, it's a very good point. Yeah, and I think that's that one often goes uh, overlooked. Um, lots of texts in on this. I keep them coming. 53106 is the text. I'm also open at Bobby uh, at, at Bobby Kerr. Um, I never bought a house prior to the recession because of the inflated prices. And uh, no, I can't get, now I can't get a mortgage and I'm in my 40s. I have to face life with no assets and when I retire uh, and all my money will be spent on rent. There's a whole cohort of people who are approaching, uh, say, 45 and after 45, banks are really reluctant to hand out mortgages. So there's a cohort of people out there who are rushing to the property market, uh, like probably like that texture there, you know, he yeah. said I won't get a mortgage now. Uh, who And, you know, even the, the governor of the Bank of England came out last week and said he put his money in property rather than a pension. And like when you have people like that who are serious punters saying that well, we have issues, you know, so you can you can see why, why people are rushing before the age of 45 to get on the property market because you're property is going to save you more than your pension will.
Yeah, I know. It's, it, it's, it's, it's interesting that you say that. So so what happens next? Where do you see this going, Larkin? Well, there's, there's a couple of things that I think that the government could do, uh, Minister Coveney. One is addressing the, the management of our existing housing stock. So the land hoarding needs to be addressed and also the houses that we have that are falling obsolete. And the, the second side of that is increasing supply. In other words, getting builders building. Now, the builders are mad to get VAT reduced, which I don't think is going to happen. Uh, but there are other costs that we could look at. And the development levy, which is a price per square metre that builders yeah. pay to the local authority for infrastructure. Yeah. Um, I think that could be looked at and the way I would look at it like the builders are meant to get that scrapped which I wouldn't agree with but I think in areas of high uh, where there is already infrastructure and infill sites in in high density urban areas you could reduce uh, development levies because the infrastructure is already there to to much lower than it is at the moment per square metre or uh, to zero and in in greenfield sites or areas where there's no infrastructure already I mean why should we be be letting people build in those areas Mm. they could pay a higher development levy so I think there are ways we could tweak the construction costs that we already have to make building much more viable for okay. house builders out there. Uh, Larkin, Sarah, lecturer in housing studies in urban economics at DIT. Sage advice as always. Thanks for that. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie Last month, aid worker Tim Jackson from Donegal travelled to Syria with a French NGO witnessing firsthand the devastation that has swept across this war-torn country. I'm pleased to say he joins me now in studio. Uh, Tim, you're very welcome to the programme. Thank you, Bobby. Tim, I, 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 I've no doubt you've seen awful and horrific things, but firstly, you might set the scene for us and tell us, uh, how, did you end actually, how did you end up going to Syria? I was invited out by a French NGO called SOS Chrétien d'Orient and they asked me out not only to volunteer and help with their various projects but also to assess the situation and to be in a position to come home and raise awareness about the situation out there. So that's what I've been trying to do since I came back. Okay, and and are you an aid worker? Is that your background? or I've It's not my background professionally but I've been in places like Calcutta and the Central African Republic where there was a war raging helping there so it's just something whenever I can. Okay, so where exactly did you go then? I flew into Beirut, Lebanon and crossed the border at night over into Damascus and then we were taken to various towns around the country just looking at the projects that are established there by the NGO and also helping with some of the rebuilding in smaller villages outside Damascus that have been devastated by the war. Okay. Uh, just the extent of the devastation, it's, it's probably indescribable, but from what I've seen, what we've seen on the, on, on the TV news, on Sky News, it just seems to go on and on. It just seems to be just destroyed. It is destroyed largely. The big cities in particular, like Homs, the centre of it is just ruined, buildings raised to the ground. But aside from just the material destruction, there's real human tragedies that we continuously hear about. Families who have lost loved ones, maybe families who have had maimed uh, children or lost jobs and lost homes and the economic sanctions as well that the country is suffering are really affecting people in their day-to-day lives on the ground. There's a ban on international banking transactions. There's no flights allowed into Damascus. And these have real real life impacts on the do. lives of those uh, on the ground. So do, do do people have any sort of quality of life? They, they surely can't have. Well, they're just trying to get by day to day. The war, as you said, is in its fifth year. And so you're trying to search for some kind of normality uh, in the midst of this war that's raging on. And they're doing their best just to survive in what's a desperate situation. And though there's a real sense of despair that this could keep going on, raging on for another few years. And it's tragic, really. Um, I, I, I think you say here that uh, it's possible to end this war, but only if people know why it began. Isn't that a, isn't that a really fair question? Why, what is this all about? There's a huge amount of propaganda and misinformation out there about the war and very little discussion about why it began. And it's important to know that, as you say. And it happened, it's essentially an arm wrestle between the USA and Russia It occurred when Qatar wanted to build a gas line through Syria to Europe, which the US and Saudi Arabia supported, because it would have weakened Russia, a country that currently pumps gas west, and its economy is heavily dependent on that source of revenue. And so the US supported it, but when President Assad of Syria said no to this and aligned himself with Russia, like the rest of the Arab Spring, riots were instigated in Syria, just like we've seen in Libya and Egypt. And on the face of it, as what's be, it's been reported all the time, this is a civil war, but it's actually not. It's a war on Syria caused by these neighbouring countries and NATO forces. 
and funded and fueled by these countries. And it's caused, as we've seen, the refugee crisis where thousands of people have drowned. Europe's gone from teetering on the brink in some respects, but also it's caused the deaths of hundreds of thousands within the country. And it's something that could be ended if there was the political will to do so. Is there, in your view, having been there, is there a viable alternative to Assad? In my opinion, from what I've seen and from speaking to people on the ground, he's the best of a bad lot. Now, he's far from perfect, obviously, but he did rule a country that was stable, peaceful and prosperous, provided free education to the people there and free health care. And that's almost un- unknown in those Middle Eastern countries surrounding it. So as much as the media might report him as being a ruthless dictator having to be replaced at all costs, it's not the case. Uh, but this is what happened in Iraq, is it not? Exactly. You know, the, 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 the aftermath of, of, of a tyrant was actually worse than the tyrant itself. Exactly. Yeah. And it also happened in Libya with Gaddafi. And it's quite well known that arms used in Libya to overthrow Gaddafi made their way into the hands of jihadi rebels in Syria. And most of these rebels are insurgents, mercenary insurgents being paid by these countries that are waging this war on Syria. So there's a lot of truths that have to come out and the real worry as far as I can see is that in November after the presidential election in the states you could see a ground invasion by the states to actually overthrow Assad because this is what they've been talking about as supposedly necessary and that would be a disaster because then you'd leave a country in total ruins for decades to come. And in your opinion Tim and my guest is Tim Jackson and Ed Walker from Donegal in your opinion Tim is the West doing enough to end this war? No. The West is responsible for the war. Right. Could have avoided it, but want another regime change. You've seen how the British Parliament were so close to, to entering Syria with airstrikes, and uh, thankfully that was avoided by a, small, uh, by a small majority of parliamentarians in Britain. So the West could end this war very easily by uh, ceasing the flow of money and arms to these jihadi rebels. Right. What other misinformation is out there, in your opinion? Well, we've all seen pictures, for instance, of that little boy Omran. Oh, God, yeah. God help him, it God. was shocking. Mm. But there's equally, say, even the day before, six people in the government-held areas were killed by rockets, killed outright, and no mention of that in any of our news media in the West, and no uh, shares on social media going viral or anything like that, and so... When these things are reported, you often have to be careful in how it's described because they'll focus on the attacks on East Aleppo. And that's fair. There's a human toll of suffering there that's unspeakable and hopefully will come to a swift end. But there seems to be a lack of reporting on the injuries and casualties and deaths caused in government-held areas um, because it doesn't suit the agenda of trying to build momentum towards the overthrow of Assad. What's the long-term outlook, Tim, for for these people and and the people living in Syria, in your view? In my view, you're looking at another decade of war unless the flow of arms and money stops to these jihadi rebels. The people are in despair, really, at living through what's been five years and there doesn't seem to be an end in sight. That said, the government has been in the ascendancy recently, especially with Russia entering uh, the Kurdish involvement and presence there complicates things. The US, who started back in what were supposedly moderate rebels, and we all seen what those moderate rebels were up to with children whom they killed, but the US have also started supporting the Kurds, and now Turkey have entered, and so it really does complicate things. All the major, most of the major players are there in that war, and it's uh, quite a precarious yeah. situation. Hugely complex, hugely sad. Do you plan on going back or what are your thoughts now that you've been there? For now, I'm just focused on raising as much information on the issue as possible back here because the solution actually is back here in the West to solving this conflict. And so I'd hope that people on the ground, much as they might be moved by these pictures coming from Aleppo, that that would translate into actual action and information being shared on a much deeper level than just the emotions that causes us all. Because feeling sorry for these people isn't actually going to do anything unless it translates into action and a determination to end the war as soon as possible. Okay, well look, uh, 
distressing and all as it is, thanks for sharing that with us. Thanks for bringing us up to speed. And again, thanks for your, your actually candid discussion on, on ex- what actually is going on out there in Syria. Uh, Tim Jackson, he's an aid worker for Bally, from Bally Buffet in Donegal. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you, Bobby. And a text just in says, Tim Jackson is very co- courageous for entering a war zone. He can only be admired for his conviction. Saudi, the West's ally in arming ISIS. That's from Marion. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie Okay, the Apple tax saga rumbles on and on. Uh, the European Commission have defended their decision to find that Apple owed £13 billion in back taxes after Apple Chief Executive Tim Cook claimed the findings were false. But one of the central questions for us is whether Ireland is indeed a tax haven that many would claim it to be. I'm delighted to be joined now in studio by Peter Brown. He's the founder of IIFT.ie and he's very welcome to the programme. Peter, how are you? I'm very good, Bobby. Good evening. Peter, this is a very complex issue, so you and I will stay away from the actual complexities of it. But let's talk generally about where we are now and what, 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 where we are right now as of today as what's happened. OK, well, it's a retrospective bill is the first thing. 13 billion worth of retrospective taxes. The question is, is Ireland a tax haven? If you look at Ireland now, uh, I wouldn't say Ireland is a tax haven. However, Ireland has a very aggressive direct inward investment policy uh, and that is to attract big multinationals who create good high quality jobs that's where this starts part of the policy there is a 12.5% corporation tax rate that I don't see anything wrong with that's a competitive edge as long as everybody's paying it uh, well no that's that's a different issue now right? But so the first part is it's a 12.5% corporation tax rate as part of the package to attract inward investment multinationals who create good jobs Any EU country can do that. Any country in the globe can do that. Now, there is definitely a historical situation where some of the tax rules that we had could be described as safe haven activity. Right, the double taxation, uh, the double Double Irish Irish. tax structure and stuff like that uh, could have been described as that. Was Was Ireland intentionally trying to be a tax haven? No, it wasn't. It was intentionally trying to attract very high class companies to create jobs. Some of the activity in the past, yes, maybe there was uh, nameplate stuff going on and maybe there was uh, unattractive tax haven type activity going on. However, the double Irish is gone uh, and Ireland is standing where it is now. So if somebody says to me, is Ireland a tax haven now? No, I don't believe it is. Could we argue that it's a, a different time? Could we argue that if you go back so far, Apple was a tiny company at the time? You know, uh, No, I think you have to argue that what happens in international tax is very, very clever accountants, right, get together and try to kind of create schemes of tax avoidance. They're incredibly complex. You yeah. know, we're not going into a bomb. No, no, right we're not. no, we're not. Right? Yeah. And they're, they're incredibly complex. And that activity happens globally. That isn't unique to Ireland. That's a global activity. You've got to look at Luxembourg. You've got to look at other countries. Uh, that's a global activity. Now, what's going on here is the EU want these multinationals to pay tax where they generate their profits. So if Apple sells phones in France, they want them to pay 33% if they sell phones in Germany. Now, there's two things. The second element to this, they also want to send a serious shot at Ireland, and they've been at this for a long time. Uh, They're not happy with Ireland's 12.5% corporation tax rate, and they would like to harmonise that with everyone else's, and we're not going to give that up. Okay, yeah. And and what about uh, people who say that those who instinctively dislike meddling bureaucrats and believe businesses should be allowed to break free of red tape and that this is an outrage? Uh, you've got the anti-business brigade who have the notion that companies making profits uh, is somehow objectionable. Like, that they'll be cheering from the... What are we going to do with this $13 billion? No, I, I am I am a believer that companies should pay their tax. I believe that if there's a company in Ireland, they should pay 12.5% corporation tax. Uh, I am a believer in that. Taxes are uh, what makes the, you know, pays for the things that uh, equals out society. So I actually kind of, you know, I'm in that camp uh, that they should pay their taxes. A point point you brought up there earlier, Peter, about, you know, the European Commission. They've effectively 
put, pitted other European countries against Ireland, haven't they? By oh, they saying, yeah. well, you know, if, as you say, if you if, if your iPhones were sold in France, why don't you go after a bit of it? Yeah, yeah. so we've been put in a very precarious situation. It's a very very difficult situation for Ireland. It's not. There's no good story for Ireland here. If anyone thinks we're going to get that 13 billion sometime and we can build hospitals and things like that, but it, that's not going to happen. Why it's, do you say that? Uh, because it's going to take um, years and years and years. Uh, Apple will fight this. Uh, it's a huge issue uh, for Apple. It's a huge issue for the US. I mean, if Apple pay this $13 billion, they just recredit it back from the US government. Yeah. Uh, they're going to have uh, a stake in this as well. The Irish government are going to have a stake in this. So, unfortunately, from an Irish point of view, if this was a story of $130 million, uh, you know, it might go away. But because it's $13 billion, this story isn't going away for years. Two things I want to say to you on that. Firstly, Apple have the resources to pay it, which is, you know, well, you know, they, and they, even they, though they it's they a have. huge figure, they still, they have the resources. So, so the second thing is that they've every right to challenge it. So whether we challenge it or not, they're going to challenge it. They're going to challenge it. But what's happened here, you have to look at it coldly and say, has this EU commissioner, commissioner uh, Margaret uh, Vestager, has she got a winner here? She has a winner. She's got global publicity. Yeah. Uh, global publicity. She outfoxed uh, us as well. She, she, she has global publicity. She stirred uh, the the EU uh, and, you know, this multinational tax system that they, they want to bring in. Uh, that's going to be reinvigorated, the concept of multinationals paying the same tax right across Europe and paying tax wherever they earn their profits. That'll get uh, reinvigorated. I think it's back on the agenda for November. Um, so she's she's got a winner. Yeah. Uh, the multinationals, the tax uh, planners and tax schemers uh, and Ireland are on the back foot here initially. Do you see a domino effect happening here, Peter? Like other multinationals have similar judgments made against them. Is that a possibility? Yeah, it is a possibility. Uh, not a now, probability. It's a possibility, not a probability. I mean, I think she's won. Uh, you know, she's 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 achieved what she wanted to do because she could go after Apple and say 13 billion. She achieved the the impact, the shock value, if you like, that she needed. So she's achieved that. Now, there's a lot of different outcomes for Ireland here. And it's a complex thing, as we said. There's a lot of different outcomes. If, I mean, here's one, right? Say, for example, you know, there's a bit of toing and froing and, you know, the multinationals, the American multinationals say, look, OK, you know, you know, game's up. Let's pay the 12.5% and uh, we'll settle there. And that's great. Ireland's still 12.5% versus France at 33. Yeah. Uh, Ireland would be a big winner there. Yeah, you know, yeah. We'd come out very, very nicely. However, if there was a big fallout between the multinationals and the EU, Ireland would then be in a very difficult situation where we were looking at a Brexit and uh, that's thing. Well, so well, there's, there's a, a lot of things. There's a text in here on that very issue. Uh, it's now time to start a discussion on our continued membership of the EU. I've yet to hear a, a minute's discussion on this on News Talk. Are you scared of starting such a discussion? That's from Tom. Tom, I'm quite happy to start that discussion with Peter Brown here, my guest. Uh, should we should we be con- looking at the continued membership of the EU? Uh, not at this stage. Yeah. We do not need to add that complexity yeah. to what's going on here. So the the important thing about this is it's going to run. Mm-hmm. It's going to run a long time. And once this heads into the lawyers, you know, it's going to be buried there, as you know, Bobby, for, well, for years, right? But it will come to conclusion at some stage. And hopefully the conclusion will be that these tax structures uh, disappear, uh, that there's a multinational tax sort of agreement uh, of some sort that Ireland can plough on that there's a load of other reasons why the multinationals are here they're not here just for the 12.5% that's not why they're here there's a load of other reasons skill labour English speaking good place to do business all that good stuff uh, they're here for if we can get this tax thing where we don't have any of this shady stuff ever happening again the thing is out in the open uh, we still would have a competitive tax advantage over other EU countries, we had the English speaking and we could still attract these uh, very high class clients. Just finally then, the other thing is that, you know, uh, as well as you saying that it's going to run for years and years, we don't even have the full ruling on this. No, we don't. So like everybody's talking about this in a bit of a vacuum, are they not? Dan O'Brien said he's not going to comment on it or he's not going to, you know, he's going to wait until he sees the full judgment because he really, there's a whole lot of stuff that people haven't seen. I don't think the full judgment has any relevance at all. And the reason is she went and created some shock and awe with a 13 billion figure. Ireland owes it. Apple is the, you can't get a bigger name in the world. Uh, Apple is the people who own it. Uh, it's Pedronard. The actual number, whether it's true or not, is not the issue here. The issue here is moving forward, has she created enough of a stir to make these multinationals 
rechange what they do and say, okay, think that's what she, her things. The detail of whether it's thirteen billion, it's there, who owes it, things like that. Actually, I don't think that's relevant. Yeah, I think I think you might be right. Okay, keep keep your text coming in five three one zero six. Peter Brown, founder of uh, IIFT.ie. As always, a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks very much for that. The right hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander seven seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie. Today marks the start of National Recovery Month and to increase the awareness and understanding of substance abuse and the road to recovery. We talk a great deal about alcohol and drug abuse here in Ireland, but do we need to be hearing more discussion about people's gambling habits and their potentially devastating consequences? Delighted now to be joined in studio by Dr. Colin O'Gara. He's a consultant uh, psychiatrist at St. John of God's. And on the line, I'm delighted to be joined by Declan Lynch from the Sunday Independent, who's written extensively on the subject. Uh, you're both very welcome to the programme. Uh, I'm going to start with you, uh, Dr. Colin O'Gara, and ask, what's the medical definition of an addict? Um, can you yeah, explain, I'll, just so that we, we, we start off at a yep. point of clarity? Ultimately, uh, Bobby, it's somebody who persists with either a behaviour or taking of a substance in the face of adverse consequences. And it's that adverse consequences is a key thing because we all engage in certain behaviours and take certain substances. But ultimately, it's where somebody persists when there's something wrong in the background. So in the case of gambling, you've got mounting debt or you know, a mountain of debt there. In the case of alcohol, you might have physical uh, or mental consequences and the same with substances. So that would be my definition okay. and very similar to say to the World Health okay. Organization well, definition. Well, thanks for clarifying that. And what is it about gambling that makes it so addictive if you are unlucky enough to be one of those people who, who becomes addicted to gambling? Well, ultimately, addiction is addiction. It's characterized by a loss of control. So, you know, those of us who work with all of all of the addictions, gambling isn't different in that regard. I think where we where we differentiated from the other addictions is the state of the consequences, Bobby. You know, there's very severe debt issues and carnage that goes with gambling. Well, put simplistically, uh, an alcoholic will drink him himself to death or whatever. Gambling tends to involve others, doesn't it? It tends to involve deception, fraud. The, the, the net of destruction tends to be wider. Would that be fair to say? Well... I wouldn't. I wouldn't like to be unfair now to to, to, I, to I, I, don't, I don't mean to make I know, one I know. sound worse than the other. I know, or that, but I'm just trying to say that yeah. that that there's just the collateral damage out of gambling, and I, it's a bad generalisation. I accept that, but it is slightly different, isn't you it? Are in, in terms no, of the you're outcome, absolutely, absolutely. You're you're correct in saying that the, there is significant collateral damage there, and and also, Bobby, I think with gambling, it's it's silent. That's the thing. It it is under the radar because with alcohol. You can normally relatives can smell alcohol and the, you know, the, the damage is quite visible with gambling. What we find as clinicians is it presents very, very late and the problem can be there for quite some time. So I guess it, it differs from the other addictions and it's quite sinister in that way and that it can be perfectly, you know, families can see nothing. And then all of a sudden they're presenting in my clinic with, you know, huge problems. And it, it as you say, you've got this long period where it's getting worse and worse and then it's you know, I've lost a year's salary or I, I'm in debt or, or somebody comes out when it's all, when the damage is, is, is at a point where it's a real, real problem and they just can't hide it anymore. Uh, let me bring in uh, uh, Declan Lynch from the Sunday Independent. Uh, good, good evening to you, Declan. How are you? Hey, Bobby. Uh, nice to talk to you. You've written extensively about gambling, uh, Declan. The, the whole move to online, has that just, you know, uh, Colin said there about it being a sort of a silent addiction, that whole move to online where really you could gamble anywhere, any place, any time now, has that, in your view, had an impact on, on, on addiction? Well, it, it has to the extent that I would nearly describe it as a new addiction, you know, that, it, you know, you, you have gambling addiction, which has been going on since the dawn of time. But what online uh, gambling has brought to it is such a, a kind of energy and such a dramatic sort of escalation of the thing that you'd nearly have to look at the whole thing anew and and categorize it virtually as a new kind of addiction that is being assisted not just by its own energy, not just by the fact that it's it's there all the time on, on people's laptops or on their phones, that it's, it's, uh, it's you know, 24-7, but that you have this... Uh, colossal industry advertising all over the place you have uh, you know half of the teams in the premier league virtually have uh, have uh, 
betting companies emblazoned on their shirts. Uh, there's a there's a great global enterprise afoot, you mm. know, and it, the the trick I think is almost to avoid. Uh, uh, you know, it, it's impossible to avoid it. Uh, you know, almost for even for people who have no interest in it, you know. So I would su- suggest that that we nearly need to be almost categorizing online gambling. That it, it it's like. Um, you know, all the technologies have conspired or have come together to create this new thing. For example, you can be looking at a cricket match on television on Sky. Uh, you know, it, it may well be, be, be sponsored by, uh, you know, by a betting corporation. You can be also betting on the red button, etc., etc. You know, yeah, what I mean? so yeah like, it's just so accessible and so easy. And, yeah, and it's been encouraged, as you say, there's, there's money at play here in that... I suppose, you know, you would say that vulnerable people in this area, it, they're really being set up to fall, aren't they, in this sense? Well, you have virtually no chance, Bobby. I mean, if you're yeah. in any way vulnerable, right, to uh, to betting, and so many of us are. I mean, it's so enjoyable and it's so attractive. And usually, if something is very, very enjoyable and, and, and it's very dangerous, we tend to try to do something about it. Like, one of the first things we might do, for example, is reduce the amount of advertising or, or have some, like we do with cigarettes, for example. Yeah. But, but if you're in any way disposed towards it, like, uh, you, you, you have no chance. I mean, <laughs> you are an absolute sitting duck. Uh, and if you avoid it somehow, it's virtually a miracle. You know? And what do you, what, what's the solution in your view, Declan? Or is there a, is there a solution? Well, it's very late in the day now because, yeah. the, if you like, due to the fact that so much of it exists on the internet, like so many things on the internet, it has stolen a march completely. The off. horse has bolted. Yeah, very, very much so. And you can sense actually by the, the volume of advertising that it's as, as though they're trying to enlist generations of addicts for the future in anticipation of the fact that there will be some kind of controls brought in. But it's, it's so late in the day. The first thing, obviously, you could do is just Stop the advertising, mm. right? That, that's that's a practical thing, you know. Uh, that might 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 assist in some way. You could look at things like, for example, when I was a kid, um, you if you wanted to have a bet of a pound, it would cost you one twenty because there was twenty pound twenty percent betting tax at the race course. There was say six or seven percent betting tax on winnings. That is now virtually zero uh, on, uh, you know. So if there was a time when, if you like, society. Uh, you know, looked on this as being something that you could, you might discourage in some way or make it a little bit more difficult than, oh. than it might otherwise be. So I suppose those kind of okay. things well, you could look at. Let, let me bring uh, Dr. Colin O'Gara back in here. Uh, Colin, is it true that 90% of gambling addicts don't get treatment? Yes, it is. I mean, the international studies would indicate, um, again, this ties in with the silent nature of the addiction, Uh, very, very few people get to treatment. And that's because of the huge stigma, in my view, associated with the medical illness. In a lot of cases, it's swept under the carpet and families will bail people out. And that's happening across the country. They certainly will, you know, they certainly will try and do that once or twice, maybe. Correct. And then it'll just become a magnitude where they can't deal with it. That's right. But on the spectrum, you see, of harm, a lot of people don't fall into that 1% category of just total wipeout addicts. You have harmful gambling, which is probably about 5 to 7% of the population, which is like going to a race meeting and you know spending hundreds more than you expected to spend, but it's not going to wipe you out. So, you know, there's, there's, there's a continuum of harm there, I guess. So what you're saying is there's a spectrum and the addicts take their place on that spectrum to severe, as you say, to yeah, somebody yeah. who maybe just goes on a bit of a gambling binge and yeah. re- realises the error of their ways and doesn't gamble for three months afterwards. That's right. Um, but what about that? Just not, why, would not, why would 90%, why would they not get treatment? Is it, be, is it a, a sense of denial? or? Well, there's, there's, there's the individual issues first, such as stigma, denial, all of that. But then there's obviously service provision. We don't have treatment uh, facilities for gambling addiction in Ireland really I mean in Dublin you, you'll get access to treatment but anywhere else very very difficult so we need to develop services as part of the gambling control bill one of the things that was going to be brought in was a, an office for gambling control and a research fund and service provision so the gambling control bill those, those of us working in the uh, services area we're very keen to see that come in from that point of view. But unfortunately, in the past three years, we've had no sign of it. 
That's, that's an absolute disgrace. Uh, my guests are Dr. Colin O'Gara, consultant psychiatrist at St. John O'Gara's, and Declan Lynch from the Sunday Independent. I have loads of texts coming in. Hi, Bobby. I'm convinced gambling is the next crisis to hit this country. I am a compulsive gambler in recovery for five years. I'm very open about it, and the amount of mothers and fathers who have asked me would I speak to their sons mainly uh, is huge. The amount of advertising is insane, and that's from Noel in Roscommon. Thank you for that, Noel. Another texter says that female online gambling is a big issue. Declan, would you have any comment on either of those texts? Yeah, well, uh, on, the, on the latter, a very interesting uh, uh, thing a couple of years ago, I saw a headline in the Irish Times saying that 33% of uh, online gambling is done by women. And my first reaction was, that's absurd. It's completely ridiculous. Sports betting as such is just not a thing that women generally do. And then, as I read the piece, it actually explained, this is about all these things like uh, poker, you know, ca- uh, casino games, yeah. Stuff like uh, bingo games. So, in fact, they have uh, gone after women hugely successfully. It's all, it was always the great problem for bookies that essentially half the human race had, vir- had no interest in what they were doing. Women generally did not back horses and stuff like this. Or if they did, uh, on the Grand National, they would take the money and go off and buy something, which, of course, is not how it's supposed to work at all. So, they, for, for, you know, centuries, virtually, they've been trying to crack this, this uh, secret. And finally, the online thing has enabled them to do that, enabled to inveigle women in, uh, in into this thing, which generally used to be a largely male um, yeah. reserve. Sports betting still would be large, largely a male thing. But uh, I think you also have this um, uh, suggestion of you know, the percentages of people who, who are addicted. I think those percentages tend to belong to, if you like, the old kind of gambling. We almost don't know what the situation is now because it's escalating all the time. Uh, I'll give you an example. I mean, I'm, uh, there was a famous case down in, in Gorey, County Wexford, of the postmaster there, a man called Tony O'Reilly. I remember that case. Yeah, he got yeah. in terrible trouble. with the, He became a, addicted to gambling uh, and, and, you know, they escalated to a situation where, you know, he stole about 1.75 million from the post office and, and went to jail eventually. Now, I'm actually working with Tony on, on his story. And, and in the course of this, just to give you an example, on the first page of his betting record, there is a bet of one euro. There's actually a bet of, you a bet of one euro on something. And then in the overall figure of his turnover is 10 million, right? Wow. This is, uh, you know, an, uh, an intelligent, uh, largely successful man who was a very responsible job, who, you know, had all sorts of normal things in his life and was generally doing very well. And, and became so consumed by this thing that uh, you can go from one euro to an overall figure of 10 million and, uh, and, and with the, the obvious chaos uh, that this caused, Tony would by no means be alone in this. And, uh, uh, and just I'm using that just as an example of, of yeah. the scale of the thing, if you like. Let me bring back in uh, Dr. Colin O'Gara. Uh, doctor, is there, is there a link between alcohol abuse and gambling? In other words... Can you have a situation where you've got an alcohol dependency that you sort of gamble when you're drunk or that type of thing? Do, are they linked? Without a doubt, yeah. There's there's what we call comorbidity. We rarely, Bobby, see addictions in isolation. I suppose gambling is a good a good example of where we see, you know, um, an addiction on its own. But certainly we would see multiple addictions coming in together. And what we'd also see is mental health issues as well. And that's why... I guess you're speaking to a psychiatrist here about this issue and that's why we treat it in a psychiatric hospital because I'll give you a figure there is a up to 20% completed suicide rate in severe gambling in some studies so what so we're dealing with So that means with, that 20% of people addicted to gambling in particular samples now will 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 go on to kill themselves oh my so God. suicidal ideation and that is the, the thoughts of suicide in the context of a severe gambling disorder is very common and very problematic and very serious. So, you know, as part of an assessment of an individual with, with, with a severe gambling problem, we would be looking at risk and risk assessment as a very important issue. Um, Declan, last word to you on this. Um, you've called it the most dangerous thing you've ever seen. Um Tell me about uh, your new book, The Ponzi Man, and what you're doing, what, you're, what, you, what, what you've uncovered in that. Well, The Ponzi Man is, is a novel. Uh, I suppose it's, uh, the main character is, 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 a, is a gambling addict. And uh, I guess what I'm trying to do is to get into the mind of such a person and to, um, you know, just tell the story of someone who 
constructed a Ponzi scheme, essentially, uh, as people have done in this country, and who kind of got away with it for a long time, but it's to kind of go into his inner life and to try to sort of, just just to get to to the root of these things, because we don't really try to understand these things properly. In the the media in general, there's a very superficial attitude to it. There's a very almost a kind of light-hearted attitude to it. Uh, And uh, I suppose I'm just trying to get deeper into it and trying to... Um, give it, a, give a, a more sort of full uh, picture of what the whole thing is like. Uh, in relation to gambling in particular, I think one thing that that does distinguish it from other addictions is that it's the only one that you can actually, you know, you you you, you can you can actually in theory rescue yourself uh, use, using the same kind of shovel that you dug the hole with in the first place. If you know what I mean. In other words, if you win, you're best. That, that's right. I mean, yeah. again, looking at say the, the which is a problem, really, because if you're winning, you still have the problem. Th- th- this is right. In fact, you know, the, the winning is the problem often. Do you yeah. Know what I mean, like you'll see a gambler and he's losing and he's losing and he's losing. Uh, if he just keeps losing, well, maybe he has some hope. But the problem is, he get a winner and you know he he keep going for another. It while. keeps him on the treadmill. Yeah. yeah. Well, listen, it's been a fascinating discussion, a fascinating, uh, something I didn't know a lot about, but I'd really like to thank both my guests, uh, Dr. Colin O'Gara, he's a consultant psychiatrist in St. John of God, and Declan Lynch from the Sunday Independent. Thank you both very much for a, a very, very good discussion. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie We will build a great wall along the southern border, and Mexico will pay for the wall. They don't know it yet, but they're going to pay for the wall. Now, for more on this, I'm delighted to be joined by Gina Lunda. She's an international communications consultant and former CNN correspondent. How are you, Gina? I'm great, Bobby. How are you? Really good to talk to you again. Now, I'm a little bit confused about this meeting. I know it happened. I'm still confused as to who's paying for the wall. So maybe just let just bring us up to speed on what actually happened. What was the well, outcome of this meeting? <laughs> well, the outcome is more confusion and more in no agreement. The, the, the surprise visit of... Donald Trump going down to visit the Mexican president Enrique Peña Nieto was a surprise to many, including those in the press corps, Bobby, that normally are following along behind Donald Trump on his every move. They weren't allowed to go down to Mexico City yesterday. They were actually transported over to Phoenix, where he spoke after his meeting in Mexico City to the people in his support to talk about this immigration plan that he had. But then he had this meeting yesterday afternoon in Mexico City with the president. He then went to Phoenix, Donald Trump, and said, yeah, I'm going to build the wall, that clip that you just heard. But the Mexican president said that he made it clear when they met that he wasn't going to pay for the wall. Okay. So <laughs> we don't have agreement on that. Okay, so the wall, but it, it, it sounds like the actual building of a wall that there's, not, I won't say agreement on it, but that seems to be a possible reality. Is building a wall even legal? Well, exactly. And it's one of those questions that Donald Trump says a lot of things and then the devil's in the details after he's spoken this great sounding soundbite. He's kept on with his wall mantra and he did that again, as I mentioned, in Phoenix. But then he did back off about who this wall was going to be protecting or who was keeping it out because he's really initially he was talking about, Bobby, all 11 million undocumented people in the United States. Now or yesterday, then he focused in on those who are undocumented and criminals. So that narrows it a lot more. And then he also did this deadly phrase of he's going to launch a task force which is sort of code for that's where ideas go to die. Yeah. And he's, he's going to launch a task force in immigration to talk about how to round up these criminals. So he's backed off a lot from where he started when he started his campaign. And in fact, he's been saying a lot of things now that many of his Republican primary candidates were saying back several months ago. But he's already alienated himself from the Mexican community, has he not? And this, anything he said has, will do nothing to change that. Like, he's done well, nothing that will change the alienation that it, that Mexican will, will actually feel towards him. And you're right, Bobby. And it's important to point out that the Mexican president himself, who's slated to give later today a sort of State of the Union address in his country, he has record unapproval ratings going on right now. So many analysts were, have been saying that 
that Peña Nieto's decision to invite Donald Trump down there was a blunder of historic proportions, that this might have been a PR stunt, but it's one that's going very badly, not only for Trump in terms of making people shake their heads in the United States going, well, I don't get it. Also, though, with the, Mexi- with the Mexicans as well, wondering what's happening there. Is there any sort of theory around what would happen, like actually happen, Mexican immigrants and even Irish ones, if Trump actually becomes president, Gina? Well, that's the question. And then you get to your point, too, very well made a moment ago, Bobby, about how legal is it? A president can't just under executive order command that everybody's deported. And it certainly wouldn't happen in a quick roundup fashion. There is a process. And like it or not, Donald Trump can say what he wants. But when, if he would actually win and then take office, there's no way, as he's been claiming in day one, a wall is going to be begun to be constructed in the United States. It just ain't going to work that way. His stance of on immigration, is it, is it going to hinder his chances of becoming president? Is, is this his Achilles heel, really? Well, the question I think becomes, too, is how can he expand his base, Bobby? He's got the trumpets. They're in, doesn't matter what he does, what he says, they want change. They see him as their savior, and they're going to probably vote for him. But right now, if you look at the Electoral College and the numbers that are needed for him to win, he is currently behind in every swing state for the upcoming election, which is just 68 days away. So, so he- just- got to make up some numbers. Yeah, so he's in free fall effectively, is he not, Gina? Well, well in, in, in some ways, though, the most recent poll in Hillary Clinton has her unapproval ratings at an all-time high. So she's about neck and neck with him. In some ways, sad to say, it's almost, almost like a race to the bottom right now, Bobby. So they're both. It's a kind of, uh, 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 do you want to hit punch me in the face or in the <laughs> stomach? Uh, who do I vote for here? Uh, either is either seem unattractive. Is that? Yeah, it's one of those things that we, I really shouldn't be laughing about because it's very serious and we're looking at the, the future of the next leader of the... Well, there doesn't seem to be any emergence of a third candidate. There was, you know, so so really what we have is what we have. So... That's right. Where does it go next now? What's, what's, you know... Well, the first debate is coming up and I think the first debate between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump is going to make a lot of headlines and a lot, of course, the world's watching. We're watching here in Ireland and it's going to be a time then for Donald Trump to see if he can try to maintain the sort of statesmanlike approach that he tried to do by going down to Mexico yesterday but and see whether or not he can keep his cool yeah. with Hillary because she's much more practiced at all of this type than he is. And if he goes off and really loses it and tries to provoke her, he very well may be alienating anybody he's trying to bring on to expand that base. And that's critical for him. And is this softly, softly rollback that he's trying to do is that too little too late in your well, opinion I Gina? say it softly 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 it might be a little bit well he's trying softly. to is he not trying to soften his tone even though <laughs> right, he may it's not all, it's all incremental measures there bobby yeah. I don't know it's quite soft Maybe softer than it was then right exactly i think he's trying but I, I i think again when you've got your own most recent campaign manager saying things he's surrounded himself and keeps changing who he's who he's being represented by and they're not doing him any favors either. So his biggest concern is he's got a small but very devoted base, but then how to expand upon that and get out the vote to turn out the numbers that he's going to have to get in order to get the states that are going to propel him over the top to get to the number that he needs to win. Let me just finally bring you back, Gina, to this yeah. debate. Uh, when you talk about the debate between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, what sort of style will, will Trump adopt in that? Will he be very confrontational or how do you see that playing out? Well, the, what I understand from the Clinton campaign is that they are working very hard to try to find the things that are going to push his buttons because that he is known to take things as we've all seen. It's not a guess. He's, he takes things very personally and he has very thin skin. And so if they can get a rise out of him and get him to react in a way that that reveals that, then that's going to be an opportunity for them. I think that's I think that's a lot of the reason why you don't hear so much from the Clinton campaign, because they're letting him maybe burn up and, and implode where they're trying to play it a little bit slower and closer okay. to the best. You might be seeing a little bit of sort of like the tortoise and the hare playing itself out here. All right. Well, listen, Gina, as always, it's a pleasure to talk to you. That's Gina London there international communications consultant and former CNN correspondent.